Support for the game podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the game podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 83 of the Game Podcast. I'm the host, Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian, the Scab Ruinator Gottlieb. This is like wrestling entrance name type of stuff now. <laughs> the Scab Ruinator? Yeah, that does yeah. sound pretty badass, I gotta say. Or m- maybe that's the finishing move, I don't know. The Scab Ruinator, just delivered through a table, completely incapacitating my opponent. Yeah. No, I just wanted to give a shout out to Scab Ruinator, not a card uh, that I've considered in quite some time, but... I have to give props where props are due. You spotted Stitcher's Supplier as your number one card in Core Set 19. I think you were spot on. I think that card changes a lot of things, both in Standard and in Modern. And all of these kind of weirdo graveyard creatures, Scab Ruinator, Vengevine, even Narcomoeba and Bloodgast and Lingering Souls and all these cards, I kind of am giving a second look now because Stitcher's Supplier is the real deal. That card does a lot. And especially when in, in combination with abilities like Vengevine and Scab Ruinator that depend on creatures to kind of get their jollies, uh, Stitcher's Supplier might be a big get for those archetypes. So I, I want to explore what's going on with that card in Modern and Standard and who knows, maybe even Legacy. Sam Black thinks it's Legacy playable. So it'll be interesting to see how far that card goes. Stitcher Supplier, I think, already 5-0 to Legacy League in, in a Sam Black deck. Right, right. The Goblin Bombardment list, correct? Yep. I believe it's great there. It just does everything that deck wants. So not surprising at all. And the, the card is really super subtly powerful and kind of unprecedented in terms of the graveyard velocity it generates. Uh, maybe in the history of Magic. If it's reaching back into Legacy, then I think it's okay to say this is a historically good card. Right, and you just need the payoffs for Standard, and I think some of them are there. Like, it it already 5-0'd with Gate to the Afterlife, which is the very, very obvious one, right? Correct, correct. And I've I've been messing with some other ones as well that aren't quite as obvious. There's, There's a lot out there, for sure. Yeah, and you know, Scrappy Scrounger is just another one where it's like, oh yeah, I guess, I guess, like this could be a thing. Yeah, a lot of good synergies. So right now, not showing up in a lot of the zombie decks for shame, y'all. What the hell? Yeah, I think that's a mistake. Yeah, I don't get it. It's not like Dread Wanderer is great. No, it isn't, and I mean, it's it's one of those things where. Stitcher supplier is a little tiny bit of value. It's the Thraven Inspector thing all over again. We're like, well, who cares about a one-two? And that was everyone's reaction when the set comes out. But the little things that Stitcher supplier is able to do throughout the game in conjunction with the dramatic effect it have, has on your graveyard, it all adds up and it all matters over time. Right. Would I spend a card on a one-two or a one-one that mills me for three or like a plus one, plus one counter or whatever? It's just like, all of these things are different ways to just like generate free resources basically. And it's like you end up putting a lot of stuff very generously on a cheap body and it ends up seeing play in various spots, you know? So it is very much a matter of just figuring out the synergies and like what it works best with and what are the most powerful things you can be doing, I think. For sure. So 
That's how I wanted to kick off this week's cast, giving you a little bit of props, giving Stitcher Supplier some props, and calling out Scab Ruinator, which I don't think has ever been part of a successful deck in all no. of its time in Magic. No, I like that card a lot, too. I did when it came out. I remember being very excited. I, I may have even pre-ordered it because that was back when I used to like pre-order things that I was high on, but that card might have started at like $25. It might be a shameful pre-order. And Yeah, it's like bulk mythic. Yeah, for sure. But it looks good, right? Three mana, five, six. And... Maybe it's just waiting for the right pieces around it. And maybe those pieces are Stitcher suppliers. Who knows? Anything could happen. So far, I have played two standard leagues, I think. Maybe a third where I had a bad record or something. You've also been playing some, correct? I have, yeah. I'm, I'm about about the same. I think I'm into my third standard league at this point, though I've been playing with a lot of nonsense. So <laughs> I don't know that I have the same takeaways you do. Well, I've been playing with decks that I thought were good. Turns out they are good, and I've been winning, which is pretty exciting. So I think I have a reasonable take on what is going on currently, which is very helpful, although I'm, I haven't been playing as much as I would have liked. I got distracted a little bit because I opened a, a sealed pool just you know for funsies. And that deck was real nice. Did you get the 5-0? Uh, I lost round one, actually. I was very, very upset. It's always the worst when you see that busted sealed pool and you're just you're basically just waiting to cash in your chips. Yeah. Like, oh, here's my 5-0. Yeah, should just, I just get e- it done with? Should I even bother playing the rounds? Like, do you guys just send me the treasure chests? Like Right. But no, uh, you actually have to play the games. But uh between that and making content and stuff, I haven't been playing as much standard as I would like, but I, I'm sure that would be different if I had like an actual tournament to go to this weekend. Right. Not a lot of uh, pressing standard events on the horizon. Obviously, the Pro Tour, a little bit down the road. Are, are you playing in the standard seat at the Pro Tour? God, no. We let Constructed Master Matt Severa have whatever seat he wants, and obviously he chose the Unlicensed Disintegration seat. <laughs> That's what it's officially called now, the Unlicensed Disintegration seat? Yeah, it, it, it's a hot seat, man. Yeah, I mean, in his hands, I think that's an appropriate use of the seat for sure. I hope so. I hope we don't blow it, but who knows? But yeah, uh, this episode is going through the first standard decklist stump. Contains, I believe, 17 decks, if I counted correctly. Mostly generic nonsense as holdovers from last season, which is kind of understandable because the cards were not very easily accessible on Magic Online and... The vendors that did have them were still a little bit overpriced because of supply and demand and all that jazz. So Mm. There's still some cards you can't even get at this point, by the way. I just thought I'd mention that real quickly, angrily. What? Like Nexus of Fate, which I can't even find. I literally can't find it on Moto. I saw one copy. One bot had one copy. Do you want to guess how many tickets it was? 35. It was 25. Okay. Even still, I, I, I couldn't bring myself to fire the 25 tickets. That what I think it's probably an unplayable card, but I, I just need to get it out of my system. But at a hundred bucks for a play set, I, I, I can't pull the trigger on that. Do you get them from treasure chests? They're only in treasure chests. That's the only place to get them. Well, I have some treasure chests. I'm, I'm actually going to load up Magic Online right now and bust my treasure chests. Oh man, if you hit Nexus of Fate, I'm going to be very excited because I'm going to take it from you. Yeah, no, I'll sword. just trade it to you. It's cool. I have, I, have to, I have to download the Magic Online update because I've been playing oh, on my desktop, but... Yeah, I'll open some Nexus of Fates for you, buddy. I'll let you play with more garbage. Can't wait. Can't wait. Other than that, you, you've been playing like Scapeshift and then you dabbled with like Yawgmoth's file offering? Yeah, so I, I played a couple leagues with Black Green Scapeshift. Um, Scapeshift is a little bit of a misnomer. Like there certainly were three copies of Scapeshift in the deck, but really uh, Stitcher's Supplier, Mending of Dominaria deck. 
And when it did its thing, it was very impressive. I went 3-2 in the first league, narrowly losing to like Mono Red and uh, Blue Black God Pharaoh's Gift, which felt pretty impossible. But the Mono Red matchup was close. I then fired up a second league. It did not go well whatsoever. You know, all the inconsistencies you would expect a Mending of Dominaria deck to have showed their heads. And Scapeshift is a little bit of probably unneeded sizzle, honestly. The real synergies there are just like benefiting from your graveyard using Stitcher's Supplier. Um, I kind of bemoaned the fact that Stitcher's Supplier and Smuggler's Copter will never get to share the same space because, man, the graveyard synergies would be out of control there. Perfect crew member for the Smuggler's Copter is uh, Stitcher's Supplier. But yeah, just a, a, a little bit of scape shift and then recently switch over to Sarkin decks, which I think are probably quite good. The Yawgmoth's Vile Offering packages, just something I wanted to try out. I knew I was being a little uh, aggressive in what I was asking for from my deck. I think probably won't be the way to go, but good to cross that card off my list. You know, it's one that the power level seemed like it could be there for standard, but just non-exile based removal at five mana is a little much right now, I think. Okay. No, that's that's reasonable. Uh, how do you feel about like the Wayward Swordtooth, Ramanap Excavator stuff? I think it's a problem in that it's it's not doing a good enough job of bridging you to the late game. Like your late game, if we're still talking in the context of like, you know, big mana decks, be it Mending of Dominaria or whatever else the big mana decks are doing, y- your late game can compete with, you know, Blue Black's late game, the, the Scarab God type end games we see quite often. There are certainly tools out of the big mana green decks to compete with those decks and to have the kind of inevitability edge over them. But I don't think Wayward Swordtooth Ramanap Excavator does enough to get you to those points. I think you're way too vulnerable in the early game playing those cards. Okay, fair enough. Well, uh, I just I opened my two treasure chests. I guess I had sold some. How many? How many Nexus of Fate? I bricked, man. I'm sorry. I got I got 20 play points in an irrigated farmland worthless completely worthless i mean i don't i don't know what the distribution is it it must be fairly rare if it's demanding that kind of price right now i'm home for the weekend i'll likely be playing some standard i will save all of those treasure chests awesome and then we'll we'll crack them live ah maybe i guess we could do that i was i was gonna say by save them i mean i'll open them immediately and then just like open trades with you and then you'll be like "Ooh, a nexus of fate i'll be like no i didn't i didn't get any yeah yeah well that's been my experience thus far with magic online so why would it change why would i ever be able to play with the magic the gathering cards i want to play with on magic the gathering's online platform what a ridiculous expectation on my part to think i would be able to access this card man do you think that people are gonna suffer the same fate in real life i am i I mean i don't i don't know where to get my hands on this card i don't know like i said we've done this before but it feels very Yu-Gi-Oh-ish to me to have a card that even if it's just the crazy people like me who want to play it, but I keep interacting with people on Twitter who are like, Oh, I can't wait to try this deck out. Do you have any info on this deck? You know, what are you, where are you at on Nexus fate? And I'm like, I don't know. I can't get my hands on them. I can't tell you anything about it. Yeah. Oh, oh man. Maybe someday. Someday. All right. First deck. And, and let me tell you, when, when you click on, the link that has all the secrets to the brand new format and people like, you know, the winning decks for people playing with new cards and you see just crappy green, black mid range from last season with no new what a cards. Letdown. What a letdown. That's, that's the first deck. Uh, it gets, it gets better, you know, and granted the bar is starting very low. Yeah. I don't have a, a whole ton to say about this archetype. I, I'm assuming you probably don't either. I haven't, 
wanted to play this deck for quite some time now. Nothing has changed. And indeed, there's no new cards here. So there's not really anything new to discuss as far as uh, green, black, winding constrictor goes. Same deck as it's always been. Still not particularly high on it. Yeah, I, I have nothing. Just stone nothing. No words. Just nothing. That's fine. All right, deck number two, Esper Control, also zero new cards. Yeah, at least like this is an archetype that I can lend some credence to as like being powerful enough, uh, you know, going back to a four Torrential Gear Hulk build, but not what we came here for, I don't think. We're, we're looking for the spice. We want to have some excitement. No, nah, uh, people are back to playing approaches somewhere in their 75, which is reasonable. It is one of the best ways to actually go over the top of the red-black mid-range decks. And I've seen a lot of lists actually that are playing just like a bunch of Settle the Wreckages, which seem impossibly hard to cast. And I don't really get it. Yeah, I ran into some of those in the queues actually, and they had that exact problem. And I know because I duressed them and they were sitting there with uncastable Settle the Wreckages. Like, look, Settle's a great card. It requires pretty tremendous sacrifice though to your mana base. And like, I think you're either a Vraska's Contempt deck or you're a Settle deck. You can't be both. You're really asking a lot if you're trying to cast both those cards. Yeah, I, I agree completely. It's just, it's absurd to think that you'll be able to cast Disallow Contempt and Settle the Wreckage in large amounts. Yep, not realistic. Next deck, ooh, we got some new cards. This is a Black-Blue God Pharaoh's Gift, uh, Gate to the Afterlife deck, uh, 30 creatures, 6 artifacts, 24 lands, one Scarab God in the main, one in the board. So that's kind of like their go-big-ish plan if their plan A doesn't work. Mm-hmm. which I, I think is completely reasonable. Sure, sure. I, I'm, I'm a buyer of this deck. I actually think the inclusion of Stitcher's Supplier into blue-black God Pharaoh's Gift has done a lot for the archetype. And, you know, there's a lot of elements in the blue-black deck that something like the blue-white deck is, is missing to some extent. Something like, you know, Hostage Taker and Kite Sail Freebooter and Chupacabra. These cards are something which is a little bit harder for the white-based God Pharaoh's gift decks to have access to. And I like the look of this deck. I, I think this is like a fine week one strategy. It's doing something that's very powerful in the abstract, has answers for most of what your opponents can do against you. And the sideboard's a little like transformation-y, like it's able to answer the really aggressive creature decks and and maybe find some wins against matchups where you would normally consider the blue-black God Pharaoh's gift archetype to be weak. So I like what's going on here for sure. I do too. This is one of the decks that I definitely want to try out. I'm not sure that I would build my deck exactly like this. I have some issues with the sideboard in particular, I guess. Like, I don't know, Yehenny's expertise does not strike strike me as a particularly good thing to be doing in your 30 creature deck. 30 creatures, yeah, not a, not a good combo there. Like, if, if that's what you need to do to beat Mono Red, it's just like, come on. Yeah, you would think there's probably a cleaner way to go about it. Like, what about just playing the mare, the horse? Plague Mare? Yeah. Yeah, that seems fine. I think that card's probably quite good in a lot of spots against Mono Red. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't kill everything, right? But like, I don't know, at least it's it's on the same wavelength as the rest of your deck. Sure, it does some cleanup duty. Light cleanup duty is also a body that sits in play. I, I get what you're saying. It's it's closer to your general game plan than shoving some Yehenny's expertise in the mix. Yeah, like Ballista into it is not embarrassing, so. Correct. One of the interesting things I had considered when putting together my first draft of blue-black God Pharaoh's Gift was instead of playing the Scarab God in this kind of alternate win condition slot, 
I looked at Graveyard Marshal, just a, a small like value creature that kind of facilitated the beatdown plan with a 3-2 body, but in the late game could get all this fodder that you have floating around and make something out of it, make an army out of it. I think that I was a little overzealous in my assessment of that card. I do think it's very good, but I, I think it's a zombies card and trying to extend it outside of that base is kind of asking it to do a little bit too much. I basically agree with that. I think the mana is also not trivial for a card like that, especially when you're trying to play Minister of Inquiries. And I think sure. one of the strengths of the Gate to the Afterlife decks is being able to play a bunch of one drops. Yeah, I think you're spot on. And, you know, messing up your mana base to try and get Graveyard Marshal in there is probably a bit much. I think one of the questions you do have to ask, though, is is it worth messing up your mana base to get Angel in there? Because Angel is going to solve a lot of the problematic matchups, you know, against stuff like Mono Red. It can be a straight up I win card, which is very nice to have in your deck. Um, but it comes at a cost. It comes at a significant cost. And that's going to be something that it'll be interesting to see in the early weeks of this format, whether people are willing to pay that cost or if Blue Black proves to be the correct way to be building the God Pharaoh's Gift deck at this stage. Yeah, it's even possible that this deck should just be like free rolling to Angel of Inventions, right? Like maybe you don't play the Concealed Courtyards and actually try and cast it, but like maybe it should be in your deck somewhere. And if, if just, it's, just have the Aether Hubs and if you hit the two Aether Hubs, so be it. Otherwise, it's uncastable. Yeah, I, I guess this deck, like it only has Champion of Wits. It doesn't have like the Charter Courses that you see in the blue-white ones. So maybe right. it's not very reasonable just because if you draw it, it's pretty bad. But again, no, you have Gate to the Afterlife too. Yeah, you're fine. You are fine. So you want to take the chance. You're saying it's time for... I, to, I'm to, saying... Do you want four angels in here? Do you no. want two angels in here? What do you think? I'm saying that if the red matchups are bad and the only way that you beat them in game one is by assembling your combo and the way that this deck is built currently, you assemble the combo and you still lose like 40% of the time. Right. And that's probably a bad place to be, right? So it's like, well, maybe you do need to put Angel in your deck somewhere. And then the question is, do you try and make it castable or not? And I think trying to make it castable if you're playing four is probably reasonable. Maybe it's not reasonable compared to like what it does to the mana base. But if you're only playing like two or whatever, I think you can just like free roll two copies. Like you can you can play like two copies of whatever creature you want, I think. Yeah, well, I was going to note that the increased velocity this deck is gaining from having Stitcher's Supplier in the 75, the just percentage of cards you're going to see find their way into your graveyard throughout the course of the game is now going to be much higher than it's been in the past with similar looking God Pharaoh's gift decks. And the the velocity is going to make an immediate difference. And maybe a simple inclusion of two angel is not the same cost it would have been previously. It's it's way easier to find one of those two angels in your games against mono red now that you have Stitcher's Supplier in the mix, which you know it's dying in that matchup. Like Stitcher's Supplier is going to get you six cards every time you play it, plus the seventh because of its own body, plus, you know, who knows what Gate to the Afterlife shenanigans are going to be going on. Uh, so you're going to see a lot of your deck hit the bin. And I, I think two angels is pretty low cost and probably changes around a bunch of matchups for you. Yeah, I could also... Well, from from playing these God Pharaoh gift decks, like, I have animated Minister of Inquiries several times, and sure. it is very awkward that in order to get the mill from it, you have to use it on your turn because it, it gains haste until end of turn, right? Mm-hmm. So if you mm-hmm. reanimate it and just pass, you can't activate it until your next turn. And you just need it as a blocker. So, like, being able to reanimate Citrus Supplier is great, both because, like, you generally want to, like, if that's your best target, like, obviously you want to mill yourself some more, right? 
right. and find like the actual juicy things. So this does it. It also blocks or attacks whatever you want it and then still has a dice trigger. Like, yeah, you are absolutely correct that like this deck is going to see way more cards on average because of Stitcher Supplier. Yeah, and it, it's the Stitcher Supplier is the reason I'm interested in these archetypes and not just blue-black, but basically every flavor of God Pharaoh's gift you can think of benefits from including Stitcher Supplier. I think you have to look at all the color combinations, what has changed, what's new, because it's kind of a whole different ballgame with this card in the mix. You're able to assemble your combo so much more reliably. The world's your oyster. Figure out what works with these kind of combinations. It's hard to imagine passing on Champion of Wits, but there's other options out there, and maybe someone will find an even more effective combination to use with Stitcher Supplier. Well, there there was a green-black one. There was. That went there around was. at some point. And this deck... Like, the blue is very minimal. It's one Scarab God, two Hostage Taker, four Champions, and four Ministers in the main deck, and then just the one Scarab God in the sideboard. So, like, if you remove Minister from the deck, I'm not saying that that is the correct move or whatever. It's just, like, you get a lot of liberty to just, like, dirty up the mana base and do whatever you want, like, add a different color and just splash Champion Wits, like, you know, things like that. Yep, yeah, yeah, that's true. And also, like... There's good red one drops like Skirk Prospector does some things for you. There's obviously still the combat celebrant type things to look into. So there's a lot of paths for these decks to explore. And I don't think this is the final form of blue black. And I don't think blue black is the final form of God Pharaoh's gift. This is going to remain a very important deck throughout the end of this standard format. Yeah. With Stitcher Supplier and Champion Wits, I think blue black is a very obvious place, but the Goblins one also got a lot of help. And that's something that I want to explore a little bit too. Mm-hmm. And I messed around with that a little bit on my stream. I, I did a deck building stream earlier in the week and just looking at like a quasi ramp ish build where you can theoretically cast your God Pharaoh's gift reliably. Cause you have Skirk prospector and there's even another sacrifice creature in red. It, it's not particularly good, but I don't remember what it's called offhand, but it's a three mana two two that sacrifices for two red. But all these sacrifice triggers add up with Gates of the Afterlife and ramping you into hard casting your God Pharaoh's gift, you know, on turn four pretty reliably. Uh, it's something to explore for sure. Yep. Uh, next deck, we have the Sifter Worm deck, except it's like it's not the Sifter Worm deck because this one is, I don't know, just like kind of tame. This is straight teamer, only seven aftermath cards. Yeah. If that's what we're calling tame these days, yes, this is the tamer version of the Sifter Worm deck. This deck is something else. I don't really have anything to say about it. I mean, if Ulamog wasn't good enough for the ramp decks, I find it hard to believe that Sifter Worm gaining nine is really getting the job done. But here it is in the 5-0 list, and I know it had a deep run at Nationals. So maybe I am being unfair to the Sifter Worm as it stands right now. Well, I especially like the look of this list just because of how clean it looks. There's certainly a lot less nonsense going on uh, in some sense, but it is still a sifter worm ramp deck, which is like a a barrier of nonsense you already have to overcome. I don't know. Seven mana, seven, seven, even if it always reads gain nine. Is that super impressive? Like, is that necessarily better than Plock a Worm, which is gain gain seven, draw a card? Uh, I know the scry is super important in this deck. I don't want to downplay how important scrying three is to a deck yeah. like this. I mean, I do, I think Palaka Worm is awesome. Me too. And, it's made its way into several of my lists already. Yeah, and I I I agree with you. I find it very sketchy that Sifter Worm is ever better than Palaka Worm. I mean, I guess 
in theory, this mana base with like five mountains, two islands, some colorless lands, even though it has 28 land, good God, maybe the one fewer pip is that relevant. I don't know. I mean, we have four grow from the ashes for our promise. And I, I know what you're saying. And that's, that's, that's nothing off the modic compass as well. So they should be able to find their green sources here. Yeah, but it's like, okay, so what if, you know, you start with one green source or whatever, and it's like you need to grow and get like a braid mana or something. Maybe you don't have time to activate compass. Like I could see a world where like it actually does matter. And sure, I, I think obviously that, it can come up. Yeah, I think that's silly. Well, but like that's the only thing that I can really think of between like the scry and the pip, you know, like that, that is the difference. Yeah. It's worth noting that this is a deck that also does not have any new cards in it, just straight pre core set 19. So this is something you could have been doing the whole time. If you were, you were very interested in this deck, you could have been casting this right along. But I think most people have made the correct call playing things like, I don't know, Goblin Chain Whirler and aggressive creatures rather than just the Sifter Worm nonsense. Yeah. Uh, I will say thumbs up for Magma Spray in the sideboard over Shivan Fury because I don't know why the hell people were playing that card. You mean Shivan Fire, right? Shivan Fire, yeah. Right. Yeah, Magma Spray is way better. Agreed. Uh, okay, next deck. Uh, straight, like, Tamada slash Kevin Jones, Just Guy yep. Control, no new cards. Cool. I, I do like this deck for whatever that's worth. Uh, I don't know how it holds up with, you know, new set, new format, all that jazz. Yeah, I haven't thought a lot about Jeskai's control and its place and it's in the new metagame. I guess it's nice to have access to a braid in this deck, um, although they only really have two copies in the sideboard. Like That's the hard sell for me to go to red, is that I, I really like having a braid. Magma Spray as well, a very important card. We talk about God Pharaoh's Gift kind of being an obvious place to start. Stitcher's Supplier being a card that can be exploited. You love seeing Magma Sprays around, but... Uh, I don't I don't know if it's worth going down this route just for those cards. I feel like there's other answers to the problem. There's ways for, say, blue-white control to deal with God Pharaoh's Gift and what they do. Um, you don't necessarily have to dip into red, but I, I do like the clean one-mana answer of Magma Spray a lot. Yeah. Uh, Whirler Virtuoso pressuring Planeswalkers, I think, is a big deal. Uh, sure. my, my list for this deck is generally a little bit different. Like, I'll have a cast out and or a Forsake the Worldly main you know, fewer sensor type things and would play fewer hardness lightnings and a couple copies of a braid. So I'm, I'm respecting like the random permanence a little bit more than this deck is, but yeah, mostly yep. the same stuff. It's also kind of tough because of how bad this deck is against control because there are no field of ruins in the 75. Yeah, that's tough. Nothing you can do about a resolve search. Yeah. So I, I really don't like that aspect, but one of the things that I have been liking a lot and I think, I think it was Tamana that turned me on to it, was just sideboarding Walking Ballista. I, I know that you were doing this in blue-white. For me, this has happened out of, like, red-black midrange, where you'll play against, like, black-blue midrange, right? And it's like, well, they have Siphoners, and you basically don't want a bunch of removal spells against them, because it's like, do you really want to kill, like, a champion of the wits? Champion wits? Mm -hmm. Like, do you want to have a pile of removal spells against Siphoners and then just lose to, like, you know, Yehenny's Expertise or whatever? And Ballista allows you to have a removal spell that also just pressures them and is something you can do that's proactive without running the risk of just like having all these pseudo dead cards. So just like A plus to, to Mata for the deck list. Yeah, walking Ballista is so fantastic in that role. It, it's hard to overstate 
how good it is at being a quasi source of pressure while also functioning as like the removal spell that doesn't cost you when you're sitting there with a handful of removal spells facing an empty board, right? Like you're very willing to put out walking ballista pressure planeswalkers, especially when Teferi is such an important card. Ballista does a fantastic job of pressuring Teferi. So I don't see the walking ballistas going away from this format whatsoever. It still remains an incredibly important card. Agreed. The next list is pretty normal blue-white God Pharaoh's Gift, although uh, this is a card that we kind of forgot to talk about, is Exclusion Mage showing up in the sideboard. That's like another card that I think could be in the blue-black lists. Uh, yes, it could, for sure. And uh, a nice little inclusion here, not an exclusion. But I think uh, playing this card cleans up a lot of difficult-to-answer things without messing with your density like your creature density is so important especially in this blue white build where the creature density is already like eh, not quite there obviously we're doing something different we're not looking to gate but i've seen god pharaoh's gift entered play and just have like one creature to reanimate and that's not really impressive like you just made a four four for seven mana i'm not blown away by what you've done here so you need to keep up with general density of creatures in your deck and Exclusion Mage does a nice job doing that while still answering problematic creatures. Yeah, I'm I'm down with Man Wars in general. I think they are specifically well positioned against things like Hazaret and Rekindling Phoenix that these decks normally had to like use a cast out on or something. And this right. is this is just like a wonderful tool that you can use to fight those cards. Yeah, Rekindling Phoenix is a, a especially vulnerable to cards like this. So good call there. Yeah. Now, so now I'm interested in like mana warring and chupacabering people out of blue black. Love it. Next list is pretty sweet. This is uh, Thought Riot, who I believe is Eric Smith. Yes, it is. Okay. Cool. Uh, so this is kind of old school Grixis Energy or Grixis Midrange, whatever you want to call it. Three copies of Nickel Bolas and no other new cards, but still pretty good. Yeah, obviously, I, I like the inclusion of Bolas. I think the card is incredibly powerful, and we're going to talk more about Bolas as we move through these deck lists. I still hate this style of deck, though. I, I still have zero interest in the 16 removal spells, 16 creature Grixis list. I feel like they're so awkward. Uh, at least there's a main deck, Arguil's Bloodfast here, which... Thank you, Eric, for <laughs> bringing you, some reason to the table. Yeah, check this out. You think Bloodfast is good in this deck, right? But there's 26 lands, the mana's not good, and eight of them are the cycle lands that ETB tapped. Like, I've tried to Bloodfast in Grixis, and it just, like, doesn't really work because of how slow and awkward your mana is. Black Blue's card power level is pretty low, and this deck's, like, power level is, you know, it's it's fairly high, and that mostly uh-huh. makes up for the awkwardness. But, like, Black Blue is, like, so smooth and its curve is so low that, like, you have time to Bloodfast. But this deck just doesn't. Interesting. So you think the tap the tap land mana base kind of precludes you from being able to access that avenue of card advantage? Well, I think you you just start every game behind anyway. The red doesn't necessarily add anything to like catch you back up, at least in a you know better fashion than black blue mid range. And I just I think like Bloodfast and Black Blue, like you will activate it twice, even against something like Mono Red. And this deck just never gets a chance to activate it, which is maybe fine. Like, hopefully you still get to transform it and do, like, the Scarab God stuff, right? But, like, it is definitely not as good as you would think it would be. Interesting. So the payoff for Argul's Bloodfast here might be more actually on the flip side than the front side of the card. 
I mean, that's what it was for my Black Blue deck too. Uh huh. Okay. So I, I guess then I'm I'm looking at Arguels the wrong way uh, in this context. I mean, if if you want to look at it as like a hammer for control, yes, it is that. But the problem is that the, the way control decks are built now with all the gear hulks and teferis is like it's pretty easy for them to go over the top of you. Yeah, you can definitely outcard advantage Arguels Bloodfast pretty easily. Does this interest you at all? Is there any appeal to this style of Grixis uh, as far as you're concerned? There are two Nickel Bolas decks I like. It is Black Blue Splash Bolas and Red Black Splash Bolas. Agreed. And I'm with you entirely. If you want to play like six cards total, like maybe your Red Black deck needs like Jace's Defeat or Negate in the sideboard. Maybe your Black Blue deck wants a couple of braids just because you're already there and you have 10 red sources. Cool. But going full ham and you know, playing contempt and torrential gear Hulk and magma spray. It's just, that's not what I want to be doing. Yeah. I've, I've always hated this style of deck and it's been popular for such a long time. Now, all of the Grixis quote unquote energy lists have always been something I just, I just never got. They never clicked with me. This continues to do the same thing. Although I, I do think Nicole Bolas, awesome card. It probably benefits this archetype. There's just better homes for it in my eyes. I agree completely. So let's move on to this next list then. I like it. 21 Zombie. swamps. 21 wow, you must swamps. you must be super excited to see zombies as a playable uh a playable tribe again. I am, but I'm not I'm not excited by like these li- like Cryptbreaker and Dark Salvation were magic cards, right? Yes, they were. They were serious magic cards. Cryptbreaker in particular. Yeah, like those are cards that allow you to grind, and these are just like, all right, I I diagraph ghoul, dread wanderer into like Lord of the Cursed, and it's like that's not what I want to be doing. Like those are the elements I moved away from with my zombie deck. And I think that's what made me successful. So along those lines, how can you make this zombies deck better? What is out there to change the fundamental game plan? You you don't want to be this anemic beatdown deck. You want to find a way to go long. And I think, you know, Graveyard Marshall is a great start at that. A, a lot of reach for this list. And it's doing the whole trick with Liliana's Mastery. Are you an eight lord person? Are you someone who thinks you need to temper down the lords a little bit and just look for staying power and maybe even like uh, Scrap Heap Scroungers, things like that? Well, Scrap Heap Scroungers in this list. And oh, that's true. Yep. Once, you, once you have Scrap Heap Scrounger and Graveyard Marshal, it's like, okay, Heart of Kieran starts looking kind of appealing. The fact that you are playing Scrap Heap Scrounger and then also playing seven lords does not make a whole lot of sense to me. You're playing Scrap Heap Scrounger and Graveyard Marshal, but no Stitcher Supplier. Yeah, that's crazy. And it's like, okay, clearly we couldn't come up with enough good zombies because we have to play Scrap Heap Scrounger. So that means we can only play one Liliana. And I think, you know, like Liliana as a two or three of is probably pretty reasonable. It's just like there's so much wrong with this where I don't really like the Lords. I think that Death Baron is more powerful than people are giving it credit for. But Lord of the Accursed is just as mopey as it always has been. It is a card that uh, frequently cited out. And I, I think that that will mostly just continue to be the case here. So I don't know, man. I'm, I really don't like the look of these decks that are currently here. Just because it's like, all right, we kind of have some go long stuff. We kind of have some beat down stuff. We kind of want to be zombies, but not really because all the zombie cards suck. So it's like, what are you doing? Hmm. So just based on what you're saying, that leads me to try and find ways to push Liliana further and use it as that kind of long game engine that we saw out of, 
you know, Crypt Breaker and, and other similar cards. But I just don't know if I buy the power level being there on Liliana. I, I think that's my concern. And I think the games where you're behind, Liliana is going to do absolutely nothing to catch you up. And it has too much potential to be blank cardboard to me, which troubles me. Yeah. Uh, and I would like to find a way to further utilize this card. I'm just not sure it's there on power level, though. No, I, I agree completely. It's like you jump through all these hoops to make Liliana's text box actually do something. And then, you know, maybe you get Goblin Chain Whirlard and your board is just decimated. And then what is she doing? Or, you know, maybe they just kill your first two things. And it's like, what is she doing? Right? Like, there, yeah. are, there are so many issues. That's just the problem. It's like you have Liliana's Mastery, Lord of the Accursed, and Graveyard Marshal, but is trying to like, or not Graveyard Marshal, Death Baron, but like is going wide and playing a bunch of lords actually a strategy that is like going to be a winning thing in this format? I don't think it is. Interesting. It'll be interesting to see where these zombie lists settle. Do you have any opinion on like white zombies? Does that do anything for you? Adding, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the multicolor zombie right now, the drain life zombie. It sucks. Just sucks. Doesn't doesn't merit any consideration at all. So the reason we didn't play it at Amonkhet was that like that zombies deck wasn't a beatdown deck. This deck, I guess like you can try and build it in that direction. I just don't think it works. Obviously it's, you know, worth merit and worth trying, but it's like, all right, you have Chapel and Concealed Courtyard. You can play Forsaken Sanctuary if you want. It is not worth it considering that you're playing it to enable Grizzly Bear. And then for every planes you play, it makes like your triple one drop draws worse. So it's just like the, the mana is going to be kind of bad and awkward. And I don't know, man. I guess there's not really another good two drop zombie past Graveyard Marshal. So moving into Scrap Heap Scrounger makes sense unless you want to play Metallic Mimic and run the risk of getting Chain Whirlard. But... If you're on the play and you have Mimic into Lord, like maybe everything is fine. So I don't know. Yeah, I've seen people talking like Miasmic Mummy and even like Binding Mummy. And it's just my opinion. If your cards are that bad, then like, why are you messing with this archetype? There's got to be better things to do in the format than playing Miasmic Mummy and other anemic cards like that. Dude, Miasmic Mummy is fine. I would actually be down with that card. You like it over Scrap Heap Scrounger? Well, if you're trying to do 12 Lords in Liliana's, yeah. Okay. I, I It just feels to me like once we're scraping the barrel for those, the draft shaft, uh, I don't know. I, I think there's, there's very powerful things to do in this very, very large standard format. And I'm not convinced that trying so hard to make these zombies work is really presenting any angle of attack that other decks aren't prepared to address. Right. To be fair, the format as a whole is somewhat light on sweepers in general. So if you can build a wide board with a bunch of like three threes or four fours, maybe that's actually good. However, there is a lot of evasion with like Heart of Kieran and just, you know, random flyers like Rekindling Phoenix, all that stuff. And also mm. a lot of the decks that exist are just very good at breaking up those boards. That's true. I guess I'll also mention too, while I trash Liliana, I, I will note that if you get Settle the wreckage, Liliana then starts to look pretty promising when you get to use the minus right away, for what it's worth. I think Liliana is excellent against control, and that that is just going to be the truth. So more of a sideboard card than what you need to be building your strategy around. I mean, it's it's possible that like Liliana snipes Hazaret or whatever, but not realistically. That, like, yeah, that's asking am, a lot. I am poo-pooing on this deck. It might look like it's because it's like, oh, this is not as good as the Amonkhet one, which is true, but 
I think that zombies for a deck that is full of cards that are not as aggressive as like mono red creatures, it has to be able to play a longer game a little bit better. And right now these tools just like don't really exist compared to what else exists in the format. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's some identity problems here. I I think is a very concise way to say it. It's not clear exactly what role in the format this deck is trying to take on. Yeah. I, I mean, the black cards in general are very strong, very powerful. And then it, do I want to supplement my fatal pushes and Vraska's contempts with Diagraph ghoul? Like, I don't think so. Probably better options out there. Yeah, like Siphoner, Champion Wit, Scarab God. Yep, for sure. I think I would rather just go down that route and not be focused on sticking three threats, just be focused on sticking one and have your cards one just One that be, matters. Yeah, one that matters and just have them all be more individually powerful. Yeah, I one of the things I noted, and I'm not necessarily pushing this as what you want to be doing with zombies, but if you think back to the early versions of zombies decks that found success around the time Amonkhet showed up, they had the Scarab God in them. They were they were blue-black zombies list splashing yep. for just the Scarab God. And I, I think that the Scarab God being this quasi-lord while also functioning as a late-game engine, it might actually be doing the job that you want Liliana to be doing in these decks. And, and that might actually prove to be a better splash than something like the white splash and keep in mind too then you get access to ways to mitigate sweepers which would be a vulnerability of this deck it's just a question of is the a plan good enough of attacking with a bunch of derpy zombies to let you bridge into things like scarab god and being able to negate wraths and those type of plans yeah i mean i think liliana's mastery is mostly better than scarab god at doing what this deck wants to be doing like if i'm going to play the scarab god i don't want diagraph ghoul if I don't want Diagraph Ghoul, then I don't want the Lords. And if I don't want the Lords, then there's no payoff to then being you don't zombies. Want zombies. And then you just want to have Champion of Wits in your deck. I yeah. get it. I, I really do. I mean, if you eternalize Champion of Wits, it is a zombie. So that's true. That's that's the zombie we're looking for this whole time. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I like Citrus Supplier Champion of Wits is pretty rad. Good stuff for sure. Just gotta find something to do. Maybe it's Bone Dragon. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, Stitcher Supplier enables... Look, we talked Scab Ruinator at the start of the show. Stitcher Supplier enables some crazy stuff. It's a very powerful magic card. Bone Dragon on its face feels very underwhelming to me, but time will tell. Bone Dragon is not good. That that, that would be my instinct as well. That Bone Dragon just is not doing Hot that. Hot take. Hot take right there. Nobody's prepared for the Bone Dragon smashing that we're about to do. Next deck, three Flame Akelds. Four Viachino Pyromancers, love it. Sideboard, three Banefire, love it even more. In in your 22 land deck, you love these three Banefires? Dude, you need a way to close against Control. I buy that. Uh, I'm not sure how often Banefire is going to be the best way to do that. I don't know. It, it, this is one of those decks where like you either do your thing or you don't, and it's going to be pretty hard. I, like Banefire isn't going to fix any of the deficiencies where you don't. You'll just get closed out of the game too quick. But I I do buy this deck. I I mean, this seems like a very, very powerful version of Mono Red. You know, we talked a little bit last format about how these hyper-aggressive red decks might be the way to exploit the red-black decks. I think that still remains true. And I think Pyromancer is actually a fine addition to this deck. Yeah, especially with Flame of Keld. You know what enables Banefire? Flame of Keld? No, well, yeah, but your opponents settle the wreckages. That's a punish. Right, right. That's true. That's a good look. 
And it's just like the games go long anyway. Like you have Kenra, you have Bowman, you have Flame of Keld. Like you have ways to both generate and utilize extra resources. So like it, it honestly wouldn't surprise me if, you know, that's kind of what the games come down to. Just like opponents just chilling at seven, has a disallow, they think they're good, and it just isn't. Yeah, I, I would note that they're probably like the plan against those control decks are is probably like the three Chandra, three Banefire. In that case, I really wouldn't mind seeing a land in the sideboard here. It just feels like you want to go to at least 23 when your plan is to get bigger like that. Space is tight, though. Obviously, people are always hesitant to give a sideboard slot over to a land, but it, it looks like they're going pretty large here, and I think a 23rd mountain could make a difference. Yeah, and then do you cut the shocks post-board, or, or like when you're boarding in that stuff, or do you cut Soulscar Mage or some combination? My instinct would be shock first, but that could leave you vulnerable to you know various plans where there's some kind of creature that's going to hold the ground. I, I know a lot of decks are boarding knights in that spot. You still have outs, obviously. You have your lightning strikes and wizard lightnings. My, my instinct is shock, but I would have to play a little bit more to be sure on that. Yeah, I think it's interesting. And a lot of these decks were playing fight with fire because it deals with Lyra. And then you also have the late game op- option of kicking it and, right. again, pu- punishing a settle the wreckage. But if that is your plan, I think Banefire is just better unless you are specifically worried about turn five Lyra. Uh, yeah, and it is worth noting this deck is probably pretty vulnerable to turn 5 Lyra if they go back in that direction. Not a whole bunch of outs there. You have to staple two removal spells together, which this deck honestly does fairly well. The fact that you get the Wizard's Lightning discount does a lot for you. Yeah, and you have Soulscar Mage too. Right, right, very true. Uh, so so maybe maybe they're able to cobble wins past the occasional Lyras that show up, but Lyra's not at a particularly huge percentage of the metagame right now if i had to guess it seems to be trending down as things stand so yeah most of the control decks are blue black based and there are some green white decks running around but not a ton so that's a perfectly fine thing to ignore right now yeah i I like this deck in general i'd give this deck a, a pretty enthusiastic thumbs up i think you could do worse than sleeving this up for a tournament this weekend me too next deck is uh steel leaf stompy splashing black Four Blossoming Defense, two Heart of Kirins, 30 Creatures, 24 Land. Pretty simple. Uh, no new cards. No, no Thorn Lieutenants. No, they were not a believer in the Thorn Lieutenant. I mean, who knows? This league could have... They could have finished the, the the games before Thorn Lieutenant was even available. So it's I wouldn't read too much into it, but uh, pretty stock green blacklist here. What do you make of the fact that when the... I don't know if we talked about this at all. When the ban decision came out, on Goblin Chain Whirler and Ian Duke wrote about win percentages in standard based on their internal Magic Online data. This was the deck with the highest win percentage out of everything in the field. I mean, it doesn't really surprise me. Really? I, I was surprised. I, I wouldn't expect this to be the most winning deck. Well, when you're talking about such slim margins, like, you know, 54% versus 49% or whatever, it's just like, I mean, this deck is probably among the more one of the more consistent decks in the format and it it kind of has like this pressure point of four toughness which a lot of decks aren't really set up to beat you know like you have rampager champion bronson on hardikiran and also blossoming defense and then we're looking at all these decks with like magma sprays and stuff mm-hmm. magma sprays and a braids mm-hmm. like this deck is super consistent. It's going to do the same thing every time. I imagine you get a bunch of free wins uh, kind of in the same way that red decks used to, but don't necessarily get any more. So then the question crops up, why is this deck 
still so underrepresented. I mean, if you look at premier event finishes and just just general play rates, I think I would argue that if this is the most winning deck, it is very underrepresented for that stat. I mean, this deck was also very good at the Pro Tour too, and like people just never really picked it up. Do you think it's just like that kind of little kid green mentality? Like, oh, these are just dumb green creatures. I'm not playing that deck. And that has scared people away from really uh, moving all in on the Steel Leaf Champions. I mean, I've I played with this deck leading up to the Pro Tour. I thought it could be one of those decks that it's like kind of like a sleeper dark horse pick or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you play games with it and it's just like awkward and bad at times. Yep. Hated and every game like, I played with it. Yeah, it just doesn't feel good when you're losing. Yep. And like four Galta, like, come on. Yeah, I mean, I, regardless of the specifics of this list here, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. There was a ton of time where you're just super frustrated playing the deck. And I'm like, how does anyone ever win with this? But it's really interesting that that's probably more of a feeling than an actual reflection of your results. Like you feel that dejectedness while you're playing the games, but that says nothing about the actual viability of the deck. If you're winning your other four games and they're just like not super interesting, but you, you manage to cobble together a win. And then that one game you lose, you're sitting there really frustrated being like, what does this deck even do? You're, you're leading yourself down some bad pathways. And I think we all have tendencies to do that when decks that are potentially good don't line up with our general play patterns that we often look for. I agree with that completely. And it's, it's kind of one of the reasons why I got off the deck was like, I looked for like a tireless tracker type of thing. Nissa Vest would see her type of thing where it's like, Oh, maybe this will make it feel not as awful, nope, not but there. it's like, yeah, the only things that exist are the explore creatures and they're just horrendous against chain whirler. And you already have land War elves. So it's, you know, you already run the risk of getting blown out. So it's just like, you don't really want to add more stuff along those lines. So it's like, I don't know, maybe you play like way more lands than other people play. Like maybe that actually helps you. You do have the Oasis and everything and scrap heap scrounger commit memory. If you're, if you're that deck. So I don't know, maybe that's the key. Could be. I, I never found the answer. I basically abandoned this deck pretty quickly when I found myself growing frustrated with it, but just wanted to point out that I, I may have been incorrect in doing so. And maybe we all should still be giving this deck a harder look than we are right now. I don't know. You have a bunch of ones, a bunch of twos, a bunch of threes, some Galtas and some blossoming defenses. Like this, this deck shouldn't feel as awkward and bad as it does. Yeah. I feel is feel though. I, <laughs> you felt it. I felt it. I think everyone who's played this deck to some extent has felt it, except the true lovers of the the, the mono green stompiest archetype, which there are some out there. There's some people who've just been jamming this deck nonstop. Well, just chalk this down as another one of the decks that I should definitely put in the rotation and definitely try. Okay. It's on the list officially. Our next deck, Clyde the Glide Drexler. Do you, uh, do you know who this is? Because this is my favorite moto name. And obviously they've been around forever, but I have no idea who it is. So the Boston dudes had like whatever year all-star team focused like clan. And it was like they all adopted the pseudonyms of like the the all-star dudes. Okay. But only Clyde the Glide has has survived to this point. That's the only, only one I see regularly. Only, only he stuck with it. I know that Siggy was one of those dudes because he was a Boston dude. I'm like, yo, Siggy, who is this guy? Because I know the story of the clan. He's like, yeah, I think I know who it is, but like I forgot, you know? Like he just can't remember for the life of him who this person is. All right. But so like, I, I know all the, Bo- the Boston people listen to this podcast. So someone get in touch with us and tell us who Clyde the Glide Drexler is. Someone must know. Like Clyde plays a lot, wins a lot, is is the current trophy leader or tied for it. 
uh, last I checked, was playing like white, black Eldrazi in taxes and winning a bunch with that in modern before people were like, their decks are generally like pretty tuned. And like, I, I feel like this person is, is really heads up. You know? I agree. I, I always take note of results from Clyde the Glide because they're one omnipresent. You always see their name included in the results and two, Dude. usually interesting. They're, they're not stock, but they're not like off the wall zany decks. They're just like little tweaks that I'm like, huh, that's worth noting. Yeah. So for example, this deck yep. is pretty normal, red, black, mid-range, except also has Nicol Bolas and the Scarab God and one copy of Banefire. I, I think that's super awesome. I mean, the late game present in this deck is tremendous, but they haven't completely given up on the early game either. There is some pressure to be gained from your your Soul Scar Mages and your Scrap Heap Scroungers and your Chain Whirlers. You still do that aggressive beatdown thing once in a while. I, I think it's less than typically you see in these decks. And certainly like Unlicensed Disintegration is at kind of a low here. There's not a ton of artifacts. You're just dealing with Scrap Heap Scroungers, Pia's. Um, but the deck is still capable of those aggressive starts while still having a super solid late game. Uh, 26 lands, I kind of love. I, I wouldn't expect to love it, but in this version of this archetype, I, I really like what's going on here. You have Bolas and four five drops. Like, why why would you not play 26, you know? The thing that I think is more out of place is the Soul Scar Mages. So I wonder if that's like a concession to not a ton of outs against something like Hazoret. Or just like, oh, I needed a one drop and this doesn't die to Chain Whirler and has some noticeable impact on the board. But I, I mean, there's only, what is it? One, two, three. We have 12 non-creature spells in the deck. So you're not even getting the prowess trigger all that often. You really have to be saying like, I want my one drop to not die to Chain Whirler. And I think the minus one, minus one counters matter. Yeah, I mean... Being able to abrade a Nicol Bolas or a Lyra or whatever definitely matters. And the sideboard has three Chandra's defeats. So it is pretty clear that, you know, you use Soul Scar and Chandra's defeat to tag team to kill a Hazret. That's perfectly reasonable to me. And yeah, this is another one of the Nicol Bolas decks where I'm like, okay, this is a cool way to build a deck that I didn't necessarily think about. Like porting Nicol Bolas into red black makes sense, but it's just like, wow, you kept like the entire shell of red black added bolus and then you're like hey while i'm here might as well add the scarab god right goblin chain whirler splash bolus is pretty incredible incredible honestly i think it works i'm not bashing it. It, it the mana seems fine to me i i can totally buy there's enough sources for everything you want to do here but it's just crazy that that's the path we went down and when i was building my bolus decks usually chain whirler was one of the first things i abandoned and that's what brought me to like the yogmoth's file offering style uh bolus decks and you know, relying on things like Pia instead of just going the Chain Whirler route. Uh, but Clyde said, time for Chain Whirler and made it work. And I really like the look of this list. If I were to play a league without some nonsense, this is probably like a stock list that I could very much see myself enjoy playing. Well, check it out. You look at these lists specifically, how many creatures are in each deck that died a Chain Whirler? Like right now, we are approaching the point where it is actually safe to cut them but the reason that I've kept them is both for a lack of other good three drops and because it crews Heart of Kieran. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's also just not that bad. Like, especially once you go up to 26 land, like all you really need is like the 22 red sources. Right. I say all the time that I, I think people downplay the first strike aspect of Chain Whirler. Like just being able to set up behind that first strike wall matters in so many games. 
It does. Like the the card is very good, even if you're not specifically picking off one toughness things. But at the same time, it's like we're we're not chained to it by any means. And are things better right now than three mana three three first strike? In the three drop slot for this deck, I I think it still remains the best option. I would rather have it right. over Pia at this point. So yeah. And I, I basically think the same, which is why it's kind of awkward, where it's like, you know, guys, we're we're at a point where we actually could cut this. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, well, why? You know? Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> it is stuff. it is still it is still like the best three drop. So even if it's not killing anything. Yeah, this that speaks very much in favor of like the difficulties we've had with Chain Whirler. And I think we both were kind of like waffling on the ban or no ban issue going back a couple of weeks where I could see the upsides of of both decisions, but that's where it really gets to me. It's like the format has adapted around Chain Whirler and it's no longer like this huge point of vulnerability where all these decks just get blown out by it. And it's still the correct choice. Like that's super problematic. And you're playing a three color deck. You have Nicol Bolas in your deck and it's still just like, eh, no problem. Yeah. Chain Whirler. Why not? Anyway, next deck, more Nicol Bolas action. This is the black blue mid range. Uh, version splashing for uh, only Nicol Bolas as red cards. Yep. That is correct. The only red card in the entire 75 is Bolas. I'm kind of okay with that. I, I, I really don't hate it. Yeah, I, I actually love this. This is Oliver Hart, a.k.a. Andrew Jessup. He always builds very good decks at the start of formats. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think that that is probably the thing that he is maybe the best at, aside from just like normal technical play, you know? Yep. Yeah, yeah, and I remember he was very strong out the gate with Soul Tie going back a few sets ago, and he seems to have found a new three-color combination that he's very much into. Yeah, I, I like the black-blue mid-range deck. It did just win U.S. Nationals. I think the lists are getting like closer and closer to being figured out, and having Champion of Wits alongside Liliana Death Majesty is very nice. And being able to play Nicol Bolas, have it get killed, whatever, and then you just play Liliana and get it back, like your opponent is down a lot of resources at that point. Yeah, I, I love the trifecta. I love the Liliana, Scarab God, Bolas trifecta. I think it's going to be the backbone of a lot of very strong decks. Uh, they probably all look something like this, but that's the starting point for me. And I, I'm on board with the numbers too. Four, two, and two sounds right. Um, and then it's the stuff around these cards that you can argue for adjustment. I mean, it seems like Jessup is saying he's not particularly afraid of Chain Whirler. He has the Glint Sleeve Siphoners in the main deck, uh, along with Champion of Wits. So, you know, here's a spot where Chain Whirler can be very, very impactful on the board for sure. So the decks do still exist that get punished by it, but. Andrew's saying it doesn't matter. My top end is so powerful. Go ahead and chain whirl away my two drops and three drops. I'm going to make it up in the four, five, and six slot. Well, he also has two Essence Scatter and two Doomfalls, which if you're on the play... Can proactively deal with it. Yeah, are are pretty reasonable against Chain Whirler. Uh, The only thing I really dislike about his deck is the three gifted Aetherborns on the sideboard. I just think that that's a, a fairly mopey card. And the more weirdo dual lands you put into your deck, the more awkward that card gets. Okay, I can I can buy that objection. Also, I think this deck might be lean enough that you could play the second Bloodfast main deck. Uh, he he split them one and one. What are the additional tap lands that have been added at this point? It's just the Slough, right? Two Sloughs, potentially two Dragon Skull Summits. Wow, there's two Field of Ruins in this mana base too that I missed on on first pass. 
Yeah, and two sulfur falls. Huh. Field of ruin in this archetype. I mean, I I, I know why you need it. That feels a little greedy to me. I don't know. I, I guess I would have to play games to know if the mana is really working out consistently. But I, I know I've been shying away from Field of Ruin and this style of build recently because I feel like it's just asking too much of the mana base. But obviously, here's Andrew finding success with it. And maybe I'm just being too cautious. You absolutely need Field of Ruin to go long against control decks with Search for Escanta. So you're saying it doesn't matter if it's taxing the mana base. You just can't compete if you don't have Field of Ruin. Uh, you will get buried if you do not have access to Field of Ruin. Okay. Un- unless it's possible that Nicol Bolas like, changes the dynamic, like maybe they're more starved for resources, you have a faster clock, maybe you transform this and just win the game immediately, you know? Like, they're, like there's a lot of different subtle dynamics that could potentially change. And it's also a situation where, you know, maybe with no glimmers, only one blood fast, your matchup against control is so bad that maybe you could just sideboard field of ruin. And that's what you do. Mm. I kind of like that approach, to be honest with you. I'm concerned about what the field of ruin is going to do to my mana base um, and a lot of other spots, but that's just looking at the deck that's not having played any games. And I'm sure, you know, Andrew's a careful deck builder. I'm sure he's considered the cost of field of ruin and he says worth it. So you can lean on, on his advice for the time being. If I discover otherwise, I'll be sure to let everyone know. Well, okay, so the black-blue list from Nationals, which was also the mana base I was playing, has, like, minus four swamps plus uh, four red-black duels, minus two islands plus two blue-red duels. So the colors outside of red are functionally the same as the straight black-blue list. Okay, so it's more about speed than actual access to colors. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the biggest difference from the mana base. Like, I, I played two Field of Ruins in black-blue. It was completely inconsequential. Could have potentially played a third one. Interesting. All right, so Field of Ruin it is at that point, then. The only awkward part is, like, if you have more ETB tap lands, and it's like, oh, well, on this turn, I would like to have three mana, but I either have to play Field of Ruin, which doesn't allow me to cast all my spells, or just play this tap land and not cast my spell. Like... That is the awkwardness that comes up when you introduce a third color. That's it. Next deck, blue-white, no new cards. Still love them. Keep those pull from tomorrow's going, Pig Norton. I got props for you. Word. Uh, Next deck, white-black knights. Yeah, so I'm a buyer of some of this. I, I really like four Knight of Grace, four Knight of Malice. I think there's some very good decks there. And a Johnny, obviously a card I'm super high on. The weirdo night lords that are floating around this list are crazy to me. I kind of wrote off Ariel and Vona as not being particularly good. Uh, And Valiant Knight, I was also fairly low on. I thought maybe it merited some consideration, but ultimately didn't make my black-white list. I guess my concern is that you're not getting enough by sticking to the night sub-theme versus just being like a general black-white deck as evidenced by the fact that you're playing Paladin of Atonement, which was a card I was initially super high on. I will say right now I was wrong about this card. I should not have been super high on it. Even even with eight Painland Deserts, you don't think it's good enough? Uh, I don't, or I mean, not worth it? that's how I envisioned it. And in my head, that's the type of deck you were playing in and one that you would always be damaging yourself. But there's a lot of Magma Sprays right now. It's still a 1-1 when it comes into play. And like, I, I hope you damaged yourself on that first turn because otherwise here comes chain whirler to ruin your day so i I don't know i I don't know that i buy paladin of atonement i want it to be good i believed it was good for a period of time 
But on the whole, while I like the black white Ajani archetype, that's how I would define this archetype. I don't think you need to lean quite as hard on the night sub theme. I think there's better things to be doing. Yeah, there are certain things about this list that make me very suspect of the entire thing, such as two Benelush Marshall with 19 white sources. The eight pain lands certainly seems excessive. Argul's Bloodfast in the sideboard with eight black dual lands, one swamp, four if near deadlands. Like to me, if near deadlands does not necessarily count as a black source for Bloodfast. Oh, certainly not. You'll deplete your life total way too quickly under those circumstances. And four copies of Remorseful Cleric in the sideboard. What deck uses the graveyard enough to the point where you want four copies of this card? God Pharaoh's gift, and then you can rebuy it with a Johnny is is my guess. That's where you're bringing it in four copies of it. Four, but, uh, four I, copies. Hold on, I'm not saying do it. I'm not saying it's a good idea. But I'm I'm assuming that was the basis for inclusion here. Four copies. Yeah, it it seems like a very hard line stance to take against the graveyard with a a not super damning card uh, to use against them. Next deck is blue black control. I don't want to talk about knights anymore. Okay. One like one murder in the main deck. Cool. Oh, yeah, ooh, anticipate. That, that's a new one. You want to talk about that one, I guess? Don't play anticipate. That's what I have to say about that. Smart. <laughs> I mean, there's not really much more to say. I, there's I'd rather play opt, honestly. If if you believed you need an effect like this, I would rather play opt and I don't think you need that either. So. I think I'd rather just play more cycling lands. Sure. I, there's a lot of other cards I would play before Anticipate. I've played Anticipate before and been very, very sad about it every single time. There's times when it's necessary based on the shape of the format. This is not one of those times. You're not pl- priced into playing an Anticipate, and it's not particularly good. All right, two decks left. One has 17 copies of planes in it. Yeah, a lot of planes here. Uh, another card that I, I know you like quite a bit too, or liked quite a bit, I should say. Liked. Liked. Is that is it still liked? Uh, I don't know. Maybe this deck is tight. This is four Ketra's Monument, three Dust Dawn, 28 creatures. Uh, we have some Militia Buglers up in here, which also made a modern appearance. And then, oh, look, four more copies of Remorseful Cleric. People love this card. Absolutely love it. Hate it. Maybe, maybe we're sleeping on this card. Also, I, I'm less upset about the Remorseful Clerics than I am about the Sun Cleanser, four cleanser which copies, I just don't get. Four copies of Sun Cleanser. What are we cleansing? I don't know. I don't have an answer for you. Sun Cleanser seems very bad. I mean, I, I think there's some merit to this archetype. I like the Mentor of the Meek, Militia, Bugler type stuff that's going on here. I just think there's way better cards that you can be playing uh, as opposed to things like Remorseful Cleric and Sun Cleanser. I kind of buy this archetype. There's a lot it has to overcome, right? Like the best deck in the format, quote unquote best deck, is a four braid, four goblin chain whirler deck. So that's a very difficult starting point to get over. But there's a lot of card advantage built into this deck. Uh, a lot of really cool synergies, at least in the core that I see, which is like Monument, Bugler, Mentor of the Meek, Angel of Invention, and then I'm a little more suspect of all the other things going on. And I would play Dust Dawn as well. I think that's a, a fine card. I like how Dust Dawn and Bugler line up together. Mm-hmm. I think that they're both kind of bad. And I think that once you add Angel of Invention to the mix, it kind of, like, Angel kind of makes sense with Monument, right? But it doesn't make right. sense with Dust Dawn. It doesn't. I mean, I guess the thought is, like, if your Angel is alive and on board, then 
you don't care about casting dusk. Well, first, but... first you dusk and then you angel. Right. But I don't know, man. I, I just kind of hate that stuff. So not a believer in this archetype. Do you think this can be refined to a place where you're on board? I, I'm telling you, I, I think the card advantage synergies are a nice little package that this deck has added. But it just seems like there's cleaner, even something like Avery mechanic. I would buy over Sun Cleanser just to get rebuys on like my buglers and do silly things with my monument. That seems way better to me than having something like Sun Cleanser in the deck. Yeah, uh, I mean maybe one four is just good enough to block against red, but it's it's not. Yeah, and you have like other fine cards you can play against red, like so. like the four copies of Sun Scorch Champion, Champion that are in the main deck. Knight of Grace is like fine as an early blocker. Yeah. You, you don't have to play something as awful as Sun Cleanser. Yeah, I liked this deck when it had Cloud Blazer and Bygone Bishop. So it had a lot of different ways to just have an engine, find the monument, find the important pieces. And it also had things like Spell Queller. So you had, you had Disruption, you had like a flying game plan, you had reasonable removal. It was just like so many things about that deck were good. And people are just trying to recreate that with these basically bad cards. The disruption aspect is what's sorely lacking here. I mean, you're kind of just solitary and hoping it's good enough. And your uh, cards are just so much worse on average. Sun Cleanser, Remorseful Cleric, Sun Scorch Champion are just very weak magic cards. Yeah, in comparison to the rest of the format, I'm with you. You need everything to kind of mush together and make a nice synergy, so... I don't know if Oketra's Monument is in the spot. It needs to be to become a player again in the format. I do like that core. I think the Mentor of the Meek Militia Bugler stuff is interesting. And, you know, maybe it takes some more work to suss out the pieces around it. But you're right that the disruption is sorely lacking in this deck. You just have a bunch of two-power dinguses. Yep. It's just not, it's not good. And also, Mono White very clearly does not have a lot of good sideboard options based on this this person's sideboard the bird steward of argive you're saying that's not top tier tech uh, i mean if you want everything to work with your dusk dawns then sure but i don't <laughs> think you will have baird in the same matchup as you'll have dust on i guess like mono green but still yeah I, I don't know that doesn't seem like a constructed playable magic card to me but do you think you're gonna time will tell you think you're gonna bring in baird and then have it die and then you're gonna dawn it back and then replay it and still be alive somehow no, I don't think that. Yeah. I don't think that at all. The answer is no. Uh, last deck is very normal red-black. Yeah, no spice here. Just, I mean, this could be like, I, I think this may in fact be like Owen's list from the Pro Tour. Uh, I don't remember the exact 75, but it is very close, if not the exact 75. Right. So not a lot to report on there, just standard red-black, but... I, I, I will say that that deck continues to be fine. I think there's probably some other more powerful stuff you could be looking to do it do at this point with this kind of shell. Bolus. Yeah. I've been playing. That's the, that's the one. I've been playing Scrap Heap, Heart, Sarkin, Bolus, Glorybringer, and it's felt great. Yeah, I think Bolus is great. I think Sarkin's great and uh, missing entirely from this deck dump it'll be interesting to see what comes out on thursday so this is the first deck dump we're looking at just so everyone knows when you go and pull this up this is the uh july 9th deck dump obviously by the time this hits there'll be one more deck dump to look at and we'll be pouring over all those results with you folks and seeing exactly how things have changed but it wouldn't surprise me to see sarkin make an appearance in those next lists well it wasn't me because i only went four and one next time i suck 
All right, we have a question. You want me to read the question? Yeah, give me a question. Uh, this is from Kane Reinhard. Kane says, we spend a lot of time talking about how to improve our own play, but what are some of the ways you found effective to help elevate the people we play with? Huh, that's a that's a cool question. I, I love that Kane is looking out for you know, his playtest partners, his community seeing ways to not only worry about how am I making myself better, but how am I making the people around me better? I see a lot of like lower to mid-level players who are basically always trying to save face. That's how I would describe their behavior. They're always trying to justify a play or recreate a situation so that their line looks favorable and justified. I think one of the things you can do that will most directly benefit your playtest partners is just check your ego, own your mistakes, own your decisions, explain your decisions, be able to justify everything you do. So that way, when you're working with a playtest partner and you're kind of going back over a game and, and reconstructing things, you're making sure that the data you're taking away from your games is worth a lot more because it's based on accurate assumptions, accurate you know, uh, kind of storytelling and and relaying of actions. All that stuff is super important to helping your playtest partner understand the game and understand the things they could have done differently in the game. You know, present your options to them. I could have done this. I could have done that. Um, but I thought you may react in this way. All of this kind of very careful recreation of games that you're playing with opponents really, really helps them to get a true understanding of the games that are being played. And beyond that, beyond just like the in-game stuff, I think people are like scared to share ideas a lot of the time. And really? Well, no, no. But listen, the the reason that happens is because there's this culture of just like naysaying. Yes. And like on the face, as soon as you present something to me, no, nah, that's garbage. And, and no further discussion. I, I think you have to, con- <laughs> it's tough because you need to strike this balance of, using your time efficiently and not wasting it on every flight of fancy out there. But I do think that people are a little bit too quick to write off novel approaches to things. Look, I, I, pl- I played a lot of games with a deck with many of Dominaria and scapeshifted it this week. And I totally get why someone could be like, you're wasting your time with that deck. Why would you bother? And be honestly correct in their assessment. But the truth is I gained a lot of understanding about things like Stitcher's Supplier and what it looks like to compete in late games against the blue-black decks and what Bolus does to the nature of late games. So there's always a takeaway to be to be gotten from further exploration of the format. And I think naysaying all ideas presented, it's not always in your best interest. I get the desire to preserve time, but I think people should be a little bit more open to the ideas of their playtest group and, and really explore everything that's being presented. Dude, I think that people love talking. Well, that's true. And I would consider myself in that group as I just rattled off a five-minute soliloquy there. But I, I think a lot of times people love talking and because of that, we're inclined not to listen. But there's a lot of good active listening you can do with playtest partners. And part of that is choosing like the right playtest partners, right? Yeah. Having people who it's it's worth listening to their ideas. And I, I think that's another part of the equation here too. Absolutely. I, I kind of take a different approach to this question where I kind of read into it as like, you know, how can you help if you were trying to like, I don't know, just approach it from more of like a coaching role or whatever. Mm-hmm. 
how do you tell someone that like their deck is bad or that their play was bad? Things like that vary from person to person, right? It's just like, there are some people like Cedric Phillips where I can just be like, yo, that play was horrendous and I would have done this and here's why. And he would be like, noted, you know? And he's not going to take it personally. He like, there's, there's no ego involved or any of that. And then there are some people where like, maybe you have to take like a little bit more care with. And I think that just knowing the person and knowing how they would most be receptive to feedback is super important. Kind of along the same lines, like how people learn the best is different. True. So I think just being cognizant of all of those things, like maybe, maybe you're not coming from a teacher role or whatever. And it's like, you know, you're, you're both peers and you're, trying to like grind up through the system and all that. And it's like, okay, well, like how do, how do I elevate both of us? And it's just like, yeah, sh- share the information and just try to get better together by like discussing plays and, you know, not treating it so much as like an individual thing. Right. Because if, if you both are invested in each other and care about each other, and obviously this goes for like, you know, groups of people larger than two. Also, if you have a group of five people, and you're all best friends and you all want nothing more than to see each other succeed. Like that is the the perfect situation for you all to actually get better. Try and share just everything. If, if you have a larger group, have a person play against a person while you watch one of the people and like either discuss things with them in that moment or after the fact, because that sort of stuff is helpful or more helpful than just like, oh, I lost this matchup you know, four one feels impossible because it's like the other person might just be like, well, you messed up here, here and here if they're watching. Right. It's like, yeah, I, I love learning in that fashion. I think that's a great way to learn. I, I love watching two skilled people play games for sure. Noted, you know, so like now if, and when we work together in real life, like that is, that is a thing that I will know to do, you know? And I mm-hmm. think, I think that that's helpful because you're talking about like wasting time and a lot of it comes down to that. But like, if you have a group of five people, it's like you have a lot of hours of bandwidth, most likely, that you get to spend in a lot of different ways. And it might seem silly to waste three people's time watching a game that only two people need to play. But it's like without the third person there, you're you're learning at such a slower clip. Yeah, it's all about return on investment. If, if dedicating that third person to watching the game is getting you a lot, then go for it. Do it that way. One of the questions I get from people a lot is, how do I deal with this person in my playtest group who we're not really vibing or there's something going on where I don't feel like I'm getting as much out of it as as I could? You're not locked into playtesting with anyone. I mean, I I could not have success on a team with people I didn't like. That's That's first and foremost for me with any group of magic players I work with. It's like, do I like you as a person? Do I enjoy spending time with you? Because everything beyond that, if I can't check those two boxes, I, I can't work with you. That's just how I am. I'm, I'm not going, I'm going to focus on the things you do that bother me as opposed to you and I working together and having a good collaborative relationship. So I think people should, it, it's okay to be selective with your playtest partners. I'm not saying you know, try and exclude anyone from your group. There's, there's a lot of inclusive things you can do, but when you're getting right down to the meat of playtesting, I think it's really important to have people you really enjoy working with. And it, that'll make the process so much smoother. It, that is true in any facet of life, whether it's right. just like hanging out with people right. or working or whatever. Like if you are enjoying what you do and enjoying the people you're around, it's going to be so much easier, not only to just, yeah, enjoy yourself while all this stuff is happening, but also like 
you're going to want to like put in the work and help this person you care about actually get better and be better. And they're going to do the same instead of just like being in this coworker sort of relationship with your play group where it's like, no one really likes anyone. And it's like, yeah, we all want to get better. That's why we work together. But like secretly we want all the other people in the group to do worse, you know, right. it's like right. that, that group is not going to succeed at all. No. And I, I've, I've experienced it. I've seen it happen a lot of times. And I, I think a lot of people get stuck in those spots just just do something else. Find find someone else to work with. Find something that makes you happy. Because that's why we're here. We're here because we love magic. Don't lose sight of that. That's an, an important part of the uh, equation here, for sure. Yeah, so I, I don't know if any of that is particularly actionable. Uh, I, I think it is, ultimately, from my perspective, is coming down to knowing the person and understanding like what would work best for both them and you. And like you said, trying to maximize your time the best that you can. So what works best for you as a learner? So I gave you my secret to learning matches. How do you best learn when you're in, in kind of a group learning situation? Uh, for me, it is basically play games until I have a rudimentary understanding of what's important and what matters and how the games play out and all that jazz. And then it is kind of similar to yours where it's just like watching other people play. Part of it is because like, I can sit and think while things are happening and try and like put myself in their shoes and like, what would I do if I were playing this game right now? I I have so much more time to think and process things compared to like when I physically have to hold the cards and make decisions and shuffle my deck and all that nonsense. Right. And I can also just like multitask doing that while also looking at deck lists or like reading Reddit or, you know, whatever it is like finding uh, whatever other like morsel of information might be out on the internet, you know? So I don't know. It just helps me a lot. I, th- I feel like there are a lot of diminishing returns on playing physical games and people who've worked with me in the last five years know that I will, you know, I'll, I'll put in a lot of work two weeks leading up to a pro tour. And then like the, the two weeks immediately when we're like in the cabin in the woods or whatever, it's like, I will play very few games. Like there's just no need for me to. It is funny how much our process, like the things you were describing, exactly the same feelings I have when involved in the testing process. I, I think I just get more sitting back and uh, observing and and multitasking and learning. And it's cool that everyone has their own approach to things. And I guess the most actionable thing you can say out of this whole discussion is like enable your co-players learning style, like figure out what works for them and enable them to do that. And it probably will lead you to both have greater success. Right. And, you know, help them understand what helps you too. Yep. Just as long as you're working smooth and there's good communication and, you know, people aren't trying to like force things down each other's throats. Right. It's like, if, if I know that this person enjoys playing mono red and wants to play mono red and, and also like mono red is a fine deck, I'm not going to try and get them to play blue black control. Right. Like mm-hmm. that is just disastrous for, for both of us basically. And I, I feel like a lot of people end up in those situations too. So yeah, just get to know each other. Love it. That's game.
Good luck.